from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide, John Chadwick, as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest. That includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash Innsmouth BC. We hope to see you soon because remember, Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. This episode is brought to you by Donner. Check out the show notes to find a good deal at Donner. Like the sound of this? This is the Donner Island Delay and the really cool Donner LP that I've shown off on like Instagram check it out. I've got some really good summer deals and check out their snap deals as well. Use the link in the show notes to help support the show. Get yourself some cool musical instruments, maybe some patch chords. Cool. This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between Fine loose leaf and common broken leaf tea bags. Oh, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, They have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. Hey everyone, it's me, TV. Just reminding you, we have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com, check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean, look cool, have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you. You're listening to KZON, Oleander Public Radio. Greetings, listeners. It is I, TV Spitzer Informative, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits. Like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZON. Good insert random time that you're listening to this. Be it morning, night, 
afternoon, uh, brunch, uh, whatever time you're listening to this. Uh, it's probably about 9 in the morning that I'm recording this. Uh, but who knows when you're listening to this. Uh, a world may have been destroyed in a global thermal nuclear event the way this week's been going. But, um, and you may be listening to it as the last surviving human being. And I and my voice are the sole comfort to you. And for that, I say you're welcome. Otherwise, hey, it's Farmer Dave and I'm by myself. That's why I'm getting away with such shenanigans because DB is getting better, but he's still not feeling that well. Uh, He's regaining his strength as he gets back uh, from uh, being under the weather. And I know you miss him. I miss him. We all miss DB. And so hopefully uh, he'll be feeling better soon. And apparently, when he is ill, I am contractually required to continue the show. So here I am, continuing the show. Sup? Yeah, that's all I got. Thanks for going to the show today. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, So this may be a very uh, shortened show, but uh, we're going to try to entertain you. By we, I mean myself. Ralph the Rooster, the Goats, and the guiding spirit of our founder, D.B. Spitzer. Uh, Daniel, we hope you're feeling better soon. And uh, for some good news, uh, we got some major events coming up, uh, including uh, something that's in the works. If you are going to be in the greater PDX area, in August, and uh, I think I'm going to wait for DB to get back before we make an announcement, Uh, but uh, you guys know that that's a, you know, I'm not revealing too many secrets, and you know, that's going to be festival and con time, and uh, so we've got some festival and or con announcements, but uh, we're going to hold off until until DB gets back to, to announce those. I am such a tease. Okay, so, uh, Speaking of festivals, uh, we all hope that DB is going to feel uh, better soon because it would be terrible to be sick on Bat Squatch Day. Bat Squatch! Yeah, come on. You guys just wait for me to do that. But, um, yeah, so that's a, a festival here at Oleander where we celebrate the Bat Squatch. You know, a lot of people think that the Bat Squatch is just this terrible, evil abomination. But you know what? They say that, you know, born in the bat- depth of hell. But I say, if a Bigfoot really loves a bonk man, then you know what? We ought to respect their choices and accept their children uh, as uh, one of the greater cryptid families. So, you know, Basquatches are just that. They're Sasquatches with bat wings. And they fly. Okay, so, um, you know, I got nothing else to talk about. So, uh, as we're waiting for the Bat Squatch uh, Festival here in Oleander, 
let's talk a little bit about bat squatches. Uh, even those who are really into cryptids may not have heard of this elusive and rare creature. Now here at the, the Bat Squatch Festival, or I think it's officially called Bat Squatch Days, we have this incredible, credible Bat Squatch sandwich. Uh, you know, everybody makes it, uh, even at, you know, Louis Louis, Oblivions, you know, uh, uh, Scout Troops and the 5H, because one more H better than the 4H, all sell oleanders world famous bat squatch meatball sandwich so you take a, a hoagie and then you take uh, meatballs and uh, uh, marinara or whatever it's sort of the red tomato sauce and it has onions and olives and then garlic and then parmesan cheese oh and and underneath the the meatballs and oh I, i'm getting so hungry just talking about this but underneath the meatballs and the the tomato sauce you put provolone cheese and that is oleander's famous bat squatch sandwich so what does bat squatch have to do with meatball sandwiches nothing absolutely nothing it's just an excuse to make garlic-based, you know, tomato-based, cheese-based sandwiches. And for that, Bat Squatch, we thank you. So let's all, let's talk about our beloved Bat Squatch. But before we do, let us give his famous mating call. Are you ready? na 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 Bat Squatch! That's how you call a um, romantically inclined Bat Squatch, if I can use that word. I think I will. So, of course, there's been Bat Squatch stories about an Oleander. Well, as long as there's been an Oleander, even the, the Native Americans talked about it. But the rest of the world, Bat Squatch is pretty new as cryptids go uh, the 90s were this sort of heyday of cryptid appearances where a lot of different cryptids that had never been seen before just started popping up including probably the most famous of the 90s cryptids or 80s cryptids is chubacabra so this guy was basically driving down in the mount st helens area which is not too far it's I don't know, 100, 120 miles from, from Oleander. You can't see Mount St. Helens from Oleander, but if you go into Portland, you can. And, and you know, as soon as I say Mount St. Helens, you all think of the, uh, you know, the, the volcano and the, the big explosion that happened, I think in the 80, but 
Um, if you're traveling in the Portland area, you see all these mountains. You know, Mount Hood, of course, is just so majestic. Uh, Mount Adams. And then all of a sudden, there's this big mountain with snow on it. And it's just, it's not pointy. It's a flat top. That is Mount St. Helens. Which, of course, the, the top was blown off in a, a, a volcano in the 80s. Well, around that area, this guy was driving in mid-90s, 94, I think. And he sees Bat Squatch which is this nine foot sort of giant ape-like creature with bat wings and it had bluish fur i kind of think like black blue but maybe it was like bright bright robin eggs blue um, i don't know but so bat squatch was first seen outside of oleander in 1994 and was immediately dismissed as a hoax because how can this 400 pound thing fly with just bat wings and most people the first thought you know you know you think of that is the flying monkeys from uh wizard of oz and who knows uh, maybe maybe uh maybe brahm was uh, inspired by the bat squatch uh the writer of of uh the wizard of oz stories I know he's mainly from, I believe, Illinois, but he did spend a couple weeks hanging out in like 1910 in Oleander, uh, along with a few other uh, notable people, uh, famous writers such as Ambrose Bierce before he disappeared in the great uh, Oleander uh, writing cult, but we'll talk more about that as the stories go on. Today we're talking about... Bat Squatch. So, if, before we talk about Bat Squatch, and I mean, obviously, this is a reference to, uh, you know, to Batman, but, you know, specifically the Adam West Batman, uh, let's talk a little bit about its progenitor, uh, and that would be the world's famous Mothman. So, if you saw that Richard Greer movie that talks about, you know, Mothman and Moth being this sort of uh, totem of destruction, symbol of the outer gods and the ultra-terrestrials, and, and I'm not sure that the real John Keel would debate that too much, but the term Mothman did not, was not an ancient, it's not a Native American term, it was created by an AP copy editor who's never been given credit, but who is basically believed to have coined the name because of the you know, Adam West Batman TV show. And it worked. It, you know, if it was called, you know, the Flying Cryptoid or, you know, this the, the, the Silver Bridge Monster, it would not have captured people's attentions as much as Mothman. Now, Bat Squatch is not exclusively Washington or Oregon or the Pacific Northwest. Um, about 2008, 2009-ish, he was seen outside of the Pacific Northwest. Possibly, maybe he was on vacation, and that's Mount Shasta. And, and let's face it, places like Hood and... Mount St. Helens, you know, Mount Shasta is 
the creepy place of you know the west coast uh it's basically in ways i would say it maybe not as famous but it's known as this paranormal hot spot i would say up there with the bermuda triangle or skinwalker ranch i remember as a child my my grandfather would tell me about the lights that people would see on uh on mount shasta uh and it may be some sort of you know it may be a real event it may be some sort of electrical uh release but um sort of like aurora borealis or saint elmo's fire that just seems to glow throughout the mountain and and it may be a really event kind of like ball lightning that we just don't understand yet but also these mysterious tall lean pale people that lived up in mount shasta and only occasionally comes down to the different cities to to buy goods so mount shasta is it, it really is the sort of west coast paranormal hotspot and bat squatch was seen there by hikers uh, and this was sort of the first time it had been seen or reported since the the 90s and then there's this reporting in 1911 like of akron ohio someone seeing a, a bat squatch by like a high school or something i, I don't remember the details but the, the thing that is important is what started as a a local sort of urban legend has spread across the nation maybe not with the viralness of uh, say mothman or bigfoot or you know the grays but it's no longer an oleander or a regional uh, pacific northwest legend it's now um you know, through the u.s now that squatch is immediately assumed to be a hoax or someone you know seeing something drunk because it's just you know the idea that this huge primate especially one made covered with blue blue fur can just fly it, it's just not logical but uh the first person to really report it out again outside of oleander was named brian canfield and he was 18 years old at the time and claims not to have been under the influence of alcohol or other substances but um reporters that talked to him always commented he seemed sincere you know he didn't seem you know bat squatch house crazy he seemed to honestly believe that this event happened to him now i've stated that you know bat squatch is associated with mount st helens and, and definitely mount st helens is a hot spot for for bigfoot but i believe the original sighting was actually in like the foothills of mount rainier in buckley washington so again not you know counting of course olander and we're kind of like our own little world of our own uh, but so outside of Oleander, it was first seen in Buckley, then reported in Mount St. Helens, and then finally, like I said, uh, through uh, coastal United States or Pacific coastal United States. Uh, a later tale is going to come about where uh, 
someone claims to have seen one of these things hit by a, by a, a logging truck. And, you know, it's not as bad as, say, a long time, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But those, those logging trucks, they can be pretty, pretty wild. And, uh, you know, definitely roadkill is very common here. Uh, so a lot of things are hit by cars because we really do this part, you know, outside of, you know, greater PDX. Even our cities here are in forested areas. I mean, this is a very wooded area that it's the city is almost an oasis here. Um, so it's definitely possible that if there was a creature like this, that it would have been hit by a, a logging truck. But I have never heard what was supposed to have happened if it was killed or, and um, what you know, was body found, removed, did it fly off? Now, I do know from observation and reports that I've gotten in that even big rig trucks can take quite a bit of damage if they hit a, a, a deer. So there's not, if a, a bat squatch really did hit a logging truck, there should be blue bat squatch for all over the girl and you know the story should be there should be photographs of the truck damage but i've never been able to find it so of course it's probably a you know it's probably a myth it's, a, you know, it's probably an urban, urban legend but the idea that one of these cryptids might be hit by a, a logging truck if they exist is definitely not out of the uh realms of possibility if your realms of possibilities include 400 pound blue furred giant bat ape just saying now one of the interesting things about bat squatch is that not a lot of reports outside of not a lot's known outside oleander of course so people can kind of give bat squatch its own powers you know He's got, first of all, flying, because why would you have a cryptid with wings if it can't fly? You know, you know, there's no penguin squatches out there or ostrich squatches out there. And, but it also can have other powers that maybe regular Bigfoot doesn't have. And often attributed to, but just because it's logical, again, logic talking about a 400-pound blue-furred flying primate uh, that it would have echolocation like bats and why not also you know that it has this screech and definitely I mean anybody who has been here or wherever at night and you've heard bat screeches can you imagine if that was you know amplified and you know was you know the bat had the ability to to you know pull your head off how scary that would be so in addition to flying, it's got echolocation as well as sort of, for lack of a better word, banshee powers. Now another power is attributed to this, and this actually comes from the Canfield story, where his truck just sort of died, lost power, and so people assumed it was the Bat Squatch that did this. But you know, normally we associate power loss, especially cars, with UFOs. 
and when it first I came across this decades ago I mean when I first came across the Mothman the Mothman was associated with you know flying saucers UFOs so it's unsure whether Camfield thought that it was the creature itself or maybe some sort of vehicle hidden that caused um, his truck to basically stall out so there's a lot of questions and a lot of mystery but there's also a lot of food and a lot of fun and we're not the only ones that make bat squash foods there's several out there if you yeah go ahead and um, just uh, do the Google thing to it but uh, like I said we're hoping that DB gets better so that he can attend our world famous na 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 bat squatch festival okay i'm uh farmer dave and uh, we're gonna take a little bit of break uh and then i'm gonna talk some more spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher or visit MonsterKidRadio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, how to support our guests, and thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know... Uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Hey everybody, I'm back and DB is still ill. So, uh, it's just me talking today. And contractually, as part of my contract with, uh, the People's Guide to Cthulhu Mythos, I do have to, um, discuss either people and or 
the Cthulhu Mythos. So let's talk a little bit about what I think is one of the most underrated of Lovecraft's creations or stories, and that is From Beyond. Now, if you heard uh, last week when I talked about Lovecraft in space, then uh, you remember that I talked a little bit about a coffee table book of science fiction that I got when I was in high school uh, that talked a little bit about Lovecraft and said that the only Lovecraft uh, story that was science fiction was The Color Out of Space. And I'm going to say that that From Beyond absolutely is science fiction. In fact, to, even though it's a very horrific story, and, and you know the the literary definition of the word horror, I think it's almost more science fiction than I than horror. So Lovecraft wrote From Beyond in 1920. It's not going to be published for another 14 years. In 1934, in uh, Fantasy Fan. Uh, Fantasy Fan was very sort of unique, almost more a fanzine than a magazine. Uh, never had more than 60 subscribers at once. Uh, it probably had a circulation of 300. But it did have access to Clark Ashton Smith, Lovecraft, quite a few other writers. In fact, of 18 issues published, 17 are going to have some sort of Lovecraft writings. Uh, poems, uh, it's, uh, the fungi of Yugoth are going to appear here. Um, they also had a sort of a called the, the boiling point where uh, Writers such as Lovecraft and Smith could basically write about whatever was boiling them, whatever they felt was an urgent to talk about. Uh, and Arkham House will eventually combine these and make them into a book. So it's a very important magazine, but we see that the story sat for 14 years. And when it was published, it was published in basically a free press. Despite, arguably, I mean, this is about to lead on to, you know, 1934, 1936, can almost be seen as the heyday of Lovecraft's uh, short stories. So, literally, this story was written 102 years ago. Uh, wasn't published 102 years ago, but it was written. And, and as near as I can tell, there wasn't a lot of changes made in the 14 years. And, and I think that there's some reason why this period before 1920s and mid-1930s is going to be important to this story. Um, as such, though, um, there's going to be spoilers. But this is a 102-year-old story, and... Like I said, one of the core of the Cthulhu mythos. So, um, by all means, you know, it, there are spoilers. And if that bothers you, well, go out and read the story and then come back. So this story, as I said, I consider very much science fiction in the fact that it draws on science or possible science. And we've got to remember, though, Lovecraft was obsessed with science. He loved science. 
he thought he had his very scientific mind. What he did not have was a scientific education. He, he didn't get through high school. He probably took basic science classes. He, he was excited. He, you know, he never went to college, but he, he loved science and did a lot of reading, but he does not have a science background. Now, to be truthful, unless you're, say, Rudy Rucker, who had a PhD in mathematics when he wrote Hardwire or Hardware and Software, or maybe Arthur C. Clarke, who, besides 2001 and a lot of other stories, really did come up with the concept of communication satellites, most science fiction writers have only a you know, normal grasp of, of science. Uh, and so we see a lot of fantasy uh, put in in lieu of science. And we see that in Star Wars, you know, where you know the X-Wings seem to have dragon space. They, they split the wings up into X's, so it'll slow them down when there's no dragon space. And there's, I mean, we love Star Wars because of its art house physics, not despite it. I think it's also important to remember that the next thing that Lovecraft is going to write, and again, remember, thank you, Ralph. I don't know if you heard that, but Ralph was commenting on, on what I was saying here. But um, it's important to remember these were written, this is the order they were written, not published in. And the next thing he's going to write is going to be Narahotep which is almost this warning about the dangers of unchecked science. Again, Ralph agrees with me on that, and at least that's a really good interpretation, I think, of the story that many people have had, that, you know, science can be deadly, it can reach out and kill. And if that's not really what Lovecraft meant in Narlahotep, I think it could be seen as definitely an influence of the dream that he had that inspired uh, Narlahotep. Now, one of the things that definitely, I think, really pushes this story from just good to excellent is the mad scientist character, Tillinghast. Now, Lovecraft did not invent or even popularize the, the concept or trope of a mad scientist. That is pretty much seen invented by Nathaniel Hawthorne in his short story, Rappuccini's Daughter, which of course is this classic, it's an amazing story, uh, way, way beyond its time, and I would recommend it to anyone. The mad scientist as a trope is going to be a household known quantity with uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Now, Tillinghast is, he he's a genius, he, but he's also very vindictive, almost sort of a gatekeeper type person. And if you didn't, you, you weren't with him, you were against him. And so he's going to basically lay this trap for the narrator. And again, we see a classic Lovecraftian narrator that we don't know his name. He is unimportant 
to the story. And I don't mean that he's not unimportant. His action, you know, kills Tillingas, it stops the monsters. But what the idea that characterization is secondary and not as important as the concept of story to Lovecraft. And Tillingas, unlike, say, the Migos, his, his downfall is his humanity or the bad parts of humanity his pride his vengeance he wants to take revenge on the the narrator and he could have just gone his way created this invention that is ahead of einstein and tesla combined and become super rich and been the most famous person in the universe but he doesn't. His his intellect is converted, it is corrupted, it is subverted to his his what would come up later terms much after Lovecraft wrote this, I believe. But basically his ego and his super ego is subverted by his id. His base human emotions and desires and to some extent passions is stronger than telling us super strong amazing top of the planet intellect he is the best of humanity but he is also part of the most petty and that he gives into these base whims takes him from a scientist to a mad scientist so the tilling gas device basically manipulates stimulates part of the human penile gland that allows people to see things it's not that they're not there that they're in most cases unperceivable they can see all these creatures on sea anemone type creatures and beings that exist in a parallel universe uh, from us that we don't see. And because we can't see it or it can't perceive us, we exist in the same space but in a different dimension and in most cases rather safely. Our ignorance is our protection. But when Tillingas basically exposes the narrator in the world to these creatures' existence, he basically opens the door. And he uses this because he knows that these creatures will instinctively reach out and attack his enemy, the narrator. Now, I kind of want to compare From Beyond with one of my other favorite horror stories that deals with an invisible monster and that would be Ambrose's Ambrose Bierce's The Damn Thing and you can hear that definitely it's one of Ralph's favorite stories he's really excited about it and again you know that's this uh, the blessings and curses of actually recording on a working farm but back to the damn thing so in this story and again if you haven't read it there's this invisible monster 
that is attacking and killing people. So, Beerus's explanation for this is that this creature is a color that humans can't perceive, such as infrared or ultraviolet. And, you know, when he was writing this, we didn't really know a lot about it. I've, I've been told by people who are smarter than me, but maybe not the, the source of this, that that's just... It, it's a fake explanation. It's pseudoscience, it, it's gobbledygook, that you really can't have something like that big, organic, in a color that human eye can't perceive, but it's a cool idea. And, and I'm not knocking Bierce or his writing. It's a, definitely a product of his time, and it's a great story. I love that story. That's one of those stories that really got me interested in horror. But, you know, it's, it's fantasy. It's not necessarily science, but that's fine. So the monster in the damn thing is basically a giant invisible mountain lion or, or maybe a, you know, a, a T-Rex or something. We don't really know what it looks like, but it acts and hunts like a mountain lion. Lovecraft is going to take this and do it one better. Now, Lovecraft is not beyond borrowing you know lord dunzany you know he, he he definitely takes from from beers from edgar Allan poe but this as near as i can tell is a unique concept that for the time and you've got to remember that in 1920 the first airplane flight was only 17 years old and the theory of relativity is only you know 15 years old so it's you know, this is an interesting time. Science is progressing. Um, I think that this is kind of the first of the alternative dimension. Now, again, it's I'm sure it's been suggested. I think it was definitely come up in theophism and pseudoscience. But this is, although maybe old hat in our time reading this is cutting edge new vibrant ideas for science fiction in 2020 and, and excuse me in 1920 not 2020 and to some extent you know uh 1934 when the story is going to be published but as as near as i can tell this whole concept that there's a different universe right under our nose even though we see that in religious texts, heaven, Valhalla, you know, for science fiction, this is, I think, one of the first, at least when it was written. Uh, it may have been some by the time it was published. And so I think this definitely shows Lovecraft as a science fiction writer. And we see this too in one of his other stories, which I think is also uh, equally uh, under undervalued, and that would be the evil clergyman, where the unnamed narrator, and and I'm going off on a tangent here. I don't get the feeling that this guy is Randolph Carter, but maybe it's the guy from the evil clergyman. Maybe he took this experiences, and the evil clergyman, he, he does seem like a different character, but maybe after a decade he's changed and he's become a more 
hard-boiled character um, who is basically hunting the spirit apparition or psychic residue of the evil clergyman with ultraviolet light. And, and I hadn't seen anyone actually suggest this, and I, I think most people consider, except for Randolph Carter, the narrators are unique individuals who have no other experience or story in these supernatural or the Cthulhu mythos. But I, I find that very interesting to link, um, you know, the narrator from from beyond and the narrator from the evil clergyman. But I was once watching a panel at a, a con, and they asked, you know, if Lovecraft had lived, what would you like to have seen him more of? And it was pretty much universally that they would rather they would like to have seen him in more of a sci-fi vibe. And I think this is definitely a sci-fi story, as well as uh, you know, color out of space. But it's definitely much more techno, much more scientific than, say, some of his more mystical things, such as the, the Dreamlands. And it definitely has influence. Uh, I think one of the best, biggest influences was in a Stargate episode, where instead of traveling the universe through the Stargate, they come across something that basically is contagious, that allows people to see these creatures. And then they realize that they've existed, you know, since the beginning, they're always there. Uh, they're harmless to us, or they can't really reach out to harm them. But it's so frightening because we can see them. Uh, there's a Star Trek episode, I think it's pretty close to that. So it's definitely a very influential story. Thank you, Ralph. In the field of science fiction. And like I said, it's just a good, exciting story uh, that I think is underrated. Well, uh, we are all keeping our tentacles and fingers crossed that DB will be back soon. Uh, and we can give you a really honest to goodness uh, people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos, maybe even with some interviews. But until then, EMDB, we hope you get better. And this is Farmer Dave signing off. Bye.